0: one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of this show is also available for free in iTunes and at TheJazzSession.com, where you'll also find Amazon links to purchase the music you hear on the show, and you'll find a donate button if you'd like to contribute directly. My guest today is uh, a person who's been a friend of mine for a number of years, and uh, as you'll hear in the interview, I actually wrote the liner notes to this record. Um, So, you know, take that for what it's worth. His name is Eric Telford. He plays uh, the trumpet, and he's got a brand-new album and also uh, a DVD-CD combination uh, out at the same time. The album is called Kinetic, and it features this track right here at the start. (laughs) Guest is trumpeter and composer Eric Telford. He's got a couple things out recently: an album called Kinetic, and also a two CD and DVD set recorded live at the Hideout Theater, which is also its title. And uh, Eric, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Jason. Great, uh,
0: to be here. It's great to have you. I'm going to start, you know, right out with the full disclosure, which is that um, I've only ever written liner notes one time in my life, and that was for your album Kinetic. So uh, Eric and I have known each other for several years now, and are our friends and. I was involved a little bit in this project, but um, not on the not on the musical side so uh, now I've cleared the air and all of the <laughs> kickbacks can start flowing in
1: right years from now they won't uh, when they launch the investigation we'll- <laughs>
0: that's exactly right. <laughs> I wanted to make sure it was easy to find a place to start, so we've done that right. So, um, you're based in, uh, in Austin, Texas now. And, uh, before we, um, dig into, uh, the music on these, uh, these two offerings here, I imagine yeah. that means knowing that I, that you lead horn sections and, and work with a lot of different artists and that this is, uh, South by Southwest time. I'm guessing that it means, uh, a busy time coming up for you?
1: Yeah, very busy. Uh, South by Southwest is, it's, uh, I, I have it light this year with about, seven gigs in three days. So that's that's my light year. Last year was a little heavier, but you know, some of us around town do like 15 gigs over the course of three or four days. Um, and uh, usually have tens of dollars to show for it at the end of the weekend. <laughs> 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 but it is uh, it's really cool to, you know, the diversity of musicians that come from all around the world. Um, that is definitely a unique experience that I guess makes it all worthwhile. Um, you know, and then after it ends, we get it back to reality and just play kind of our local things.
0: And uh, give folks an idea uh, about some of the diversity of the groups with which you'll be performing uh, during the three days.
1: Well, I'll be performing with a singer-songwriter um, who uh, we actually have a weird connection. Um, we both lived in Rochester, New York at the same time and had a similar circle of friends, didn't know each other. We both moved here to Austin the same year, um, I think maybe the same month. Then eventually just met each other through different musician circles, and uh, now I play in his band. His name is Kalu James. Um, he's a great singer-songwriter. Um, I play uh, keyboards and trumpet. And uh, several shows with him. Um, a uh, friend of mine who's the uh, granddaughter of trumpeter Nat Adderley, and uh, the I guess she's the grand... Niece of um, Cannonball Adderley, she leads a band that's a kind of a soul pop, like one of those powerhouse horn type bands. Um, and my horn section, Hellfire Horns, plays with her quite a bit. We uh, were on her album that was released last year. And uh, then just some other pickup gigs. I with a guy named Chris Pierce out of L.A. He's another singer songwriter. Um, and then uh, you know whatever other kind of leftover gigs that the other Trumpet players in town can't handle. Um, I'm sort of purposely trying to keep it not super busy this year because um, of some some gigs coming up that I want to rehearse my band for.
0: Uh, and and just in uh, in favor of completeness, I don't think you gave the name of the woman who's the grand niece of.
1: Oh yeah, that, I'm sorry. right. Uh, Akina Adderley is her name. Um, great. Uh, can
0: you talk a little bit about? Um, uh, kind of the, the Austin scene as seen through the lens of a, of a trumpet player? I mean, it sounds like, uh, and from everything I, n- I know about you, it seems like you're you're keeping incredibly busy. Is it, has it surprised you at all how easy it's been to work, or has it not been easy and then you just make it look that way?
1: Um, it's really easy to play music here. Uh, it's really tough to play music and make a living. Um, and it's even tougher to play music and make a living, and play with musicians who, um, you know, I guess to put it diplomatically, where you feel like you're getting um, a great experience every time you go out and play, or most of the time at least. But the opportunity to play here is, uh, I've never heard of anything like it or experienced anything like it until I came to Austin. Um, It's, I mean, you could pretty much almost literally play every day You know, at least two gigs, maybe three, if Um, you really wanted to.
0: Of now, looking at uh, at the projects that you're working on, it was moving to Austin. Uh, was it a, a catalyst or uh, a kind of an an aid in making these things that you're working on now happen? Do you think you would have achieved, been able to achieve the same thing? You know, where you were.
1: Well, a couple things happened that sort of helped me get to the point where I am now, at least here in Austin, um, through a couple people I met once I came here. I was able to uh, start my horn section, and I eventually was able to perform with a group called the Scabs, which has been an Austin band for, I guess, since the mid-'90s, and uh, their horn section was on tour with Jason Mraz, so my horn section got an opportunity to be their subs. And um, they're one of the, sort of the, I guess for a horn section, there really doesn't get, in town at least, to be a better gig. that's kind of the the ultimate gig to have in town. Um, So with that, I was also able to uh, play and record with the leader of the SCABs, Bob Schneider. Um, And so that, coupled with a couple people who I knew here, or I know here from Berkeley, um, where I went to school, sort of helped me meet the right musicians. And um, sort of, I guess, to a lot of people, being associated with those musicians, helped prove that I was sort of serious in the scene, and I think in a relatively short time. So just meeting the right people and getting in the right situation to where I felt comfortable enough to put a band together and then also record that band, uh, I think it was a combination of those things that really put me in a position to do that.
0: Being the leader of a horn section feels uh, wonderfully 1970s to me. It's, it's, it's great that there are still places in the world where you can lead a horn section and and collectively get work.
1: Yeah, you know, I actually see it, it, it was something that I, I'd always been aware of sort of on the periphery of my musical experience, I and mean, I've played in different bands that you're sort of a consistently working horn section, but... It wasn't until I moved here and I started playing with a, a couple of guys in this uh, band called Flyjack which is like a kind of 60s and 70s throwback soul funk band and out of that band we formed our horn section and since then I've seen a lot of people in town do that um, and I think a lot of it has to do with the the popularity of this horn section that I was talking about earlier Grooveline Horns who They play with Jason Mraz, and um, they were just on tour of the meters. And so I think a lot of people, including myself, are trying to take what they have done and sort of take their music and package it in a way that they can have fun, they can have a consistent project, but also sort of have a brand. And that's what interests me about it beyond the music, is creating an identity that people can go, oh, yeah, those guys are on... That recording, or I know their sound, and I think I think we're sort of carving our unique niche. We we don't do just typical like soul bands. We do a lot of Americana um, and some like power pop. Um, so we've been on a lot of different types of albums, and um, you know I, I think the the group of guys that I play with um, I think they each offer something unique that isn't necessarily found in other sections around town and. Not that it makes us better or worse, but I think it makes us different, which I think is more important than being uh, better than someone.
0: makes A lot of sense to me. Um, but I want to focus on, uh, the, the two, uh, the album Kinetic and also the, um, two CD DVD set, which is very, very cumbersome to say, so probably I'll just start referring to it by its title because if I have to say that too many more times, I'm going to weep. Um, called Live at the Hideout Theater. And, uh, Maybe you could start off just by talking a little bit about what some of your, your goals were for Kinetic, um, whether there were some either compositional goals or uh, kind of documentation goals that you were going for with uh, with that album.
1: I think a big part of it was documentation, uh, just sort of going through the process. It's, to me, I, I sort of relate it to writing a large um, work for, like, orchestra, um, where you kind of you do it, to get the process down so the next time it's a little better and hopefully the next time it's a little better. Um, also, I think for me it was a way to sort of make real what I'm, I'm trying to do, which is just play music for people and hope they enjoy it. Um, but I've always been a, a type of person, I don't really like um, being a sideman as much as, as leading the group or at least having a say in the group that I'm, I'm a part of. Um, and, obviously, having your own album is sort of the ultimate of that because you can direct um, the, everything about the album, um, but also let your musicians kind of uh, take your vision and interpret it. Um, so I think it was, you know, part just getting the process down, and also for me it was uh, a way to write some music. I hadn't written some, uh, a lot of music in a while, and so having the, the goal of a album made that a lot more possible. So I think probably like half the music on the album I wrote in the months leading up to the album. And then the other half was stuff that I uh, sort of reconfigured. I also gave myself uh, a strict time limit. So I basically just did two days in the studio and said I have to get everything in two days. Uh, a friend of mine who's on the album, uh, Matt Maley, who plays sax, He was flying down from New York, and so he was pretty much confined to those two days. So I knew I had to do it then. And, you know, I don't know if that was the best decision when I look back on it, but it did make, forced me to make some quick decisions and just to get it done. Um, And I think that that alone sometimes holds uh, people going through the artistic process. I think it can hold us up where we, if we give ourselves too much time, then we, start to make too many um, decisions second-guessing ourselves. So I I like constraints in in my music and my projects and just kind of having a goal and doing it the best I can and then, you know, later on sort of evaluating and figuring out what I need to change for the next time.
0: And that process certainly doesn't sound uncommon at all. I mean, from my experience interviewing uh, on this program, it seems like most artists you know, kind of lack the luxury of, like, a year on the road and then we go into the studio and make the album. In most cases, it's everybody's flying in, you know, we have 24 hours and we're going to get one 30-minute rehearsal and we're going to make the album. Uh, I mean, it certainly seems like now nowadays, given how mobile everyone is required to be, that seems to be more the norm than, than the exception.
1: Yeah, I'd, I'd say that's right. Um, you know, I think the other big factor in that is money. If most musicians are independent musicians they don't have a label backing them or a financer or whoever some you know rich guy up on a mountain smoking cigarettes overseeing their career so um, that's
0: who funds this show by the way I just want to make that.
1: <laughs> I've met him HD <laughs> penny packer yes like that. that's right uh, but I, I think that's that's one of the big things too is you know you're you're on a financial budget so to be recording for months and months just sometimes financially isn't feasible. So you, you have to do what you can do. And I, I think, you know, I know friends of mine who have been recording albums for a long time. Um, the Akina Adelaide who I mentioned, you know, she really took her time with her album and she was able to do that, and that's awesome. I didn't have that time. And so I think there's positives and negatives of both sides of it that, you know, if you have that time, you can kind of tailor the process a little more and adjust as you're going through it. Whereas if you don't, you're sort of forced to make decisions and just live with them and, you know, hopefully you like it. And I didn't really like my album for about, uh, I guess, a little over, almost a year. Um, I didn't like the stuff we recorded um, for mostly because of me and just the, the process that I sort of forced everyone to go through. So I left it for about eight months. And then I came back to it, and um, I originally thought, well, okay, I got I got like four tracks. So I was like calling friends. I was like, do you think four tracks is enough to release a CD? I mean, a CD, I don't, why are CDs important anyway? Everyone, everything's done digitally. And I started to listen to it more and more, and I met this uh, mixing engineer who was coming to Austin to work on an album that I recorded on, and um, he actually, <laughs> he did the last Doobie Brothers album. And he also, um, he does all the American Idol music. Uh, so they, they do the show, and then he mixes it down and goes on iTunes the next day. Um, but he took an interest in the project, and I wasn't sure because his, his clientele is not, they're not jazz musicians. But uh, he said the right things about, you know, the type of music, and um, he decided that he would be able to dedicate some time to it. And I think that kind of uh, all those things coming together it was good that I waited um, because I found the right person to, in my opinion, it sounds good at least you know half of the reason it sounds good in my to my ears anyway is because of him, uh, Jose Alcantar who um, mixed the album.
0: it's so interesting. I, the, uh, it kind of brought to mind, um, uh, a, a scene in the movie American in Paris where, uh, Gene Kelly is selling some paintings and he's reluctant to sell them. And he says, they're kind of, you know, like your children. And right. in your case, it sounds kind of like, you know, you said, Oh, this is actually kind of an ugly baby. And <laughs> it it took like my bastard. <laughs> yes, that's right. And it took um, you a while to, to appreciate
1: it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that was, you know, just, I think that was my own up. Um, Sometimes, I think we all, uh, I know you do artistic endeavors, I think we just, we, we can get into a pattern of second-guessing ourselves and, and worrying about what other people think, and when it comes down to it, you know, you have to, although you want people to like it, and obviously I want people to listen to the album, ultimately, I need to be happy with it, because if I'm happy with it and no one listens to it, then at least I feel I made something that I'm proud of. If I'm not happy with it and everyone loves it, well... You know i i don't think uh, i don't think i'd like that either. So,
0: well, despite the fact that you're in Texas, let's talk about evolution. And uh, <laughs> in this case, I mean from uh, I'm going to take a very specific example and talk about. Let the me two- get
1: my new uh, my new textbook out. Of- <laughs> yes, if
0: you if you would your your Jefferson free textbook. <laughs> right. Um, And by the way, we're going to have to go through and scrub a few references in the liner notes, too. I just realized (laughs) that. But uh, I want to talk about one particular tune, and that is um, the tune Rosemary, which Uh um, on Kinetic and then on Live at the Hideout Theater is uh, effectively – it's almost two entirely different compositions. And in many ways, that's kind of composition through arrangement. Yeah. but I think to some degree from what I've heard you say kind of in snippets of email and that kind of thing, it, it seems to, to some degree represent what you feel is an evolution that's been happening uh, kind of in your own approach, either to the band or to your compositions. And, and I thought maybe you could just talk more about that. What, what things you see changing and what you think might be behind those changes.
1: You know, Rosemary on, on Connecticut is done as just a pretty straight ballad with me and, um, Angela Lundessi the piano player. And originally I wrote it as, as just like as jazz waltz. Um, and I've performed it that way live. And, and then for the album, you know, I wanted a ballad, but I didn't want to do a, a jazz ballad where, you know, just the typical kind of play melody solo a while. I just wanted the melody to really speak for itself, and I, I kind of liked, it appealed to me to just, you know, make a statement with the melody and get out pretty much. So that was the reason behind the, the way we did it on Kinetic, a ballad to be able to put in a set and ballad with effects and, um, you know, uh, just we're not really playing straight ahead tunes and that. So I use that as a way to make it really kind of um, ethereal and just, you know, the melody is more kind of hanging over this long pedal and it's more about all the colors behind the melody rather than the chords that I originally wrote for it. And I, I sort of, you know, took a page from, like when, um, I mean, I don't know, maybe I copied them or maybe I borrowed it. Hopefully, I copied it because I hear that's better to do, or stole it. Hopefully, I stole it rather than borrowed it. Um, Miles Davis's groups used to do that when he would, his evolution into doing electric music. He would do, um, I think it was, I fall in love too easily. He started doing, and then eventually it sort of morphed into just this kind of, this ambient thing that lasted several minutes so i think i was sort of stealing uh, a thing from him and in, in the concept but every time we play it i try to change it a little bit in fact now i have a version with i wrote um, lyrics to it and we do it more like a kind of um a afro-cuban feel um so i i think the the evolution of my music uh in the last you know year or almost two years since I recorded Kinetic. Um, I don't think it's huge, but it's a it's a intentional direction I'm trying to take my music in and my belief is that good music can be played in almost any style. So if I can take one of my songs and adapt it to a totally different style to where maybe, you know, someone who listens to it on the Hideout Theater C D um, maybe won't really like it as much as Kinetic and I'm okay with that. Um, You know, I think having those different styles, and some people might not even realize they're the same song. Um, I think that's actually kind of a cool thing, being able to adapt it to different situations.
0: Yeah, I I really like the idea of of revision in art. I mean, it's not, I guess it's not always appropriate, but um, I don't know, one person who springs to mind is, you know, maybe like Frank Zappa, who... Uh, you know, you would hear snippets of things sometimes actually lifted from the tape of other performances and spliced together to make a new tune, but often just melodic ideas that had appeared, you know, 10 years before that he reworked into something totally different. And that that seems to be common in some kinds of art uh, and in writing, particularly the idea of going back to something and revising it into something new in in jazz. In my experience, it seems a little a little bit less common. I mean, you can think of the examples, but there don't seem to be as many of them, of people revisiting the same material and creating something almost entirely new out of those building blocks.
1: I'd say, um, you yeah, know, I'm not necessarily a historian for jazz, but I, and just off the top of my mind, I, I think, you know, maybe the bebop era was where that was really big. They were taking dance tunes that they were playing in the big bands, and then they were going into a club and rewriting melodies based off of little lines of um standards in making them you know uh, making the changes a little more complex, making the melodies more complex so in in a sense, I think they were reworking other people's works for that um, and yeah i I think revision is good i I think also that we all have our own vocabulary, whether it be in language uh, or music or painting or writing um, and you can't really get away from that so if there's certain parts of your vocabulary that are there with you for a while then you sort of have to use them um you don't really have a choice otherwise you're not going to sound like yourself um so I, i i think for me part of it is just you know that's just who i am i hear certain things for a while and i i try to use those ideas and put them into little um different situations one of the songs on um the hideout theater um uh, DVD. Uh, it's the On the second half of it, there's transitions one, two, and three. Number two is basically based off of like a five-note pattern that I had sitting on my piano for probably over a year. And I had this idea. I was like, oh, that would be a really cool song. I, I want to be able to make this into a song, just this one little pattern. Um, and I had that idea from the way Ravel composed Bolero, where he, he got this um, he got hired to write bolero for a, a, a ballet and he 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 didn't really like the ballet at all he, he thought it was really terrible so to make the project interesting to him um, he forced himself he said okay I'm gonna use one melody through for 20 minutes basically and he ended up using two melodies um, but he put constraints on himself to make it more interesting so for me it's it was sort of a similar thing with that, um, but I—it was something I had reused before in little snippets.
0: Hearing that kind of process conversation, I feel compelled to point out that another aspect of the band, and, and particularly in the performances that are on um, the Live at the Hideout, uh, the, there's definitely like a. We're in a club playing kind of music, like groove oriented music that people seem to really be enjoying from that aspect too. I mean, it's not. This is definitely not all kind of like headspace music, there's a lot of kind of hip. <laughs> hip-paced music going on, too. Thank you.
1: <laughs> Thanks. Um, you know, my, my real goal, um, if I'm going to give away all my secrets, I actually I want to have that band to be sort of like a jam band. And I know that there's a lot of negative things associated with jam bands, but the bands that do it really well, I think, are like the listening experience for people who are into that music is phenomenal. Um, you know, when I see I consider Soul Lives basically jam band. Um, I don't know if that's what they consider themselves, but when I've seen them, they definitely jam out and I, I think it's awesome. Um, obviously um Modeste Martin and Wood is one of the you know, the one of the best of that genre. Um, and musicianship is so high that the jammy aspect it's not like you're going to a concert by a band who might have a lot of negative associations with the jam band team. Um and for the future of my career, I won't name any because I mean, you know, if they ever want to hire me, I'd be wiped. <laughs> <to play. laughs>
0: um
1: but yeah, I want people to really like I want to make listenable music with that and it's it's tough to make listenable instrumental music um, unless you are out there all the time playing and and then you're just getting exposure. So the still the music making process I think is just really tough uh, so it's for me it's a still a process and there's not a lot of venues to play it at especially in Austin but it's something I'm interested in and kind of keeping that um, almost like like none of us are playing wind instruments um, you know like we're all playing guitars or something uh, that kind of appeals to me and um, you know I think there's there's a, a bit of um, use associated with that, too, that I, I kind of like that maybe it appeals to a younger crowd to hopefully get them interested in other music that might be a little more, uh, you know, where you have to really, like, really pay attention, um, like you said, sort of head music where it's it's a little more complicated or um, just more exploratory from uh, um, improvisation and not as much groove, I guess.
0: So uh, what's coming up on your calendar?
1: So we have uh, a couple gigs that I'm I'm excited to be able to bring my band on the road, and um, it's not, not something I thought I would have been able to do this year, but we're going to be uh, playing in California at the end of April, April 27th, we're playing in my hometown. It's the first time I've played there in over 10 years, so that's going to be exciting for me. Um, and then in... June. Is that Monterey? Yep, Monterey, okay. California. Um, we're playing at a place called Wave Street Studios in Canary Row. And then in, uh, in June, we'll be going to play the Rochester Jazz Festival. That's June 17th, and um, we'll be in the Big Tent. And then on June 18th, the next night, we'll be in Philadelphia at Chris's Jazz Cafe. And uh, all of the, the gigs and everything are on my website around the world wide web
0: that's great man well congratulations that sounds really cool
1: Thanks.
0: and uh, folks please do uh, check out the show notes at the jazz dot com and you'll uh, find Eric's website and you can find all the information about where you can see him and uh, that's really exciting I'm uh, I can only imagine the logistical challenges of taking the entire band to all those places <laughs>
1: it's uh, yeah it's, it's awesome yeah that's right that's
0: exactly the way you have to approach it i think to maintain your sanity (laughs) and and finally and and really let's be honest perhaps most importantly how are our red Sox looking this year do you think
1: (laughs) well um you know i i do this thing every year and uh, i'll either make a lot of um fans right now or lose a lot maybe both so you know, I go through. You're
0: only going to make the the right kind of fans. So it's, I mean, whoever <laughs> whoever you're going to lose, they're they're just as well gone. I say.
1: So. Good point. You, you know, I actually don't. With baseball, for me, I um, I sort of start paying attention after basketball because I'm a Lakers fan, and you know, in, in a couple of years they they do decent. They've done decent in the, um, leading up to the postseason. So, you know, it's always the other thing about baseball. I mean, it's a marathon, so it's. Really, until you know, if the Red Sox are in first place at the All-Star break, that's when I start to worry. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> um, other, other than that, I try not to worry too much. Um, you know, I'm a—I I think, even though I'm not from Boston, I think I'm a typical Boston fan. I'm very pessimistic, um, but I'll—I'll I'll stick by them no matter what. So, uh, I like you know, it. Hopefully, hopefully they turn
0: out good <laughs> Alright, works for me My guest is uh, Eric Telford He's got uh, two things out that you can get And should get, one is an album called Kinetic And the other is called Live at the Hideout Theatre Which is a DVD and two CDs uh, And they are both Well worth your attention Eric, it's, uh, it's great to talk to you Congratulations on, uh, on all your success And uh, thanks a lot for being on the
1: show Jason, thank you so much It was a pleasure
0: That's music from trumpeter Eric Telford. He's got a new album and also a new uh, CD-DVD set out at the same time. My thanks to Eric for being on the show. My thanks to you for listening. I'm Jason Crane. This is The Jazz Session, presented by All About Jazz, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is also available for free at thejazzsession.com and in iTunes. The Respect Sextet recorded the theme music, and you can find them online at respectsextet.com. They are playing many shows in the East Coast these days, so please do check them out at respectsextet.com and see if they're coming anywhere near where you are. And if they are, go out and see them. Dave Rabel designed the show's logo. Thanks, Dave. And thank you for listening. Please do go out and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session.
1: Listening everybody! Bye! Bye!
0: Bye.